The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigean Technologies. Today, we welcome one of my favorite NDMers, William Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Human-Computer Interaction and Head of the Interaction Design Center at Middlesex University, London. His research is in cognitive engineering and the representation and interaction design of user interfaces that enhance situation awareness, sense-making, reasoning, and decision-making in dynamic environments such as air traffic control, emergency ambulance control, and critical incident management. William's current research focuses on designing for transparency in human-machine teams. Just a few weeks ago, in September 2020, William returned from a two-year industrial sabbatical as principal scientist at Genetech, Inc., where he and his team commercialized selected intellectual property from the EU-funded Valkyrie Project. Valkyrie was an amazing project that I have enjoyed following these last several years. This was a 17-organization research and development consortium that William led from 2014 to 2018. They were tasked with developing a next-generation visual analytics and sense-making system for criminal intelligence analysts and investigation. He has received over $25.3 million in research grants and published over 120 scientific peer-reviewed articles with his students and colleagues. Welcome, William, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thanks, Laura and Brian, for having me here. So I'm always curious about how people got their start. And I know that before becoming an academic, you served in the military. I wondered if you would just start off and tell us a little bit about your experiences in the Army and the Air Force. Oh, that's a a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) In another life. I guess I'll, I'll briefly talk about my, my, my army experience or, or one of them anyhow. Uh, it was 1980 and I was 20 years old, a freshly minted second lieutenant uh, in charge of a platoon of about 30 soldiers. We had an incident. One of our soldiers ran amok um, during a live firing exercise. He walked up to his sergeant and shot him in the throat at point blank range, literally. Uh, while my company commander and others were trying to subdue the soldier, I dashed over to the wounded sergeant. I, I could only hear gurgling noises as I put my hand under his neck to support his head. All I felt was a bit of a warm mush. Called for the medic and we tried to stop the beating with a, a field dressing. Um, and then we found that it was too small, so we had to uh, use a shell dressing, a much larger, larger uh, dressing. Uh, as there was a fairly large, big hole at the back of his head. Uh, He didn't make it. Um, These things don't happen often, but it's hard to forget, uh, even after all these years. But shortly after that, uh, I I joined the Air Force. I think I had too much of these blood things. So I joined the Air Force and I trained as an air defense controller. Uh, My job was to provide ground control intercept functions uh, where we use radar to guide fighter aircraft and SAM surface-to-air missile missile, uh, to to intercept hostile aircraft. Uh, And we also provided what we called the 
ground wingman functions uh, when our fighters were engaged uh, in a dogfight. That is when they are within, what, five, ten nautical miles of each other, and all you see on the radar is just one great big furball. In, in those days, we, we trained on something called the Marconi um, S316 and the L319 radar, long-range radar, uh, in conjunction with a, a set of HF 200 high finders, high finder radars. And these were connected to one of the earliest computers we, we, we've had, a, a GL161 air defense radar capable of computing and calculating air, tra- air intercept profiles. Um, we as controllers interface with the radar system through a, what do you call a, 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 a T64 radar console. Uh, and we, we learn to manually as well calculate intercept trajectories using, I don't know if you remember this, China graph pencils um, and, and, and templates and overlay templates. Then a few years after that, we migrated to a mobile air defense system and integrated with a squadron of E2C um, uh, airborne early warning and control aircraft that we acquired from the US. Um, <clears throat> in thinking back, um, one of the most one of the more exciting events, I guess, was the um, an exercise, a major exercise with the US Navy. Our job was to get our fighters and bombers to a U.S. carrier force somewhere out in the South China Sea. I was on duty as safety officer, monitoring the situation on radar and all frequencies. I think we set up about uh, two flights of about eight aircraft each, uh, a flight of A-4s and a flight of F-5s. This was years before our F-16s and F-15s arrived. Um, When our fighter fighter bombers were about uh, 100 nautical miles on the carrier, you could just about see where uh, the carrier is. A whole bunch of these blips uh, appeared on the radar. Uh, You you sort of know where the location is. Um, Navy fighters were launched to to defend the fleet. You could hear over the radio safety net, Fox 3, Fox 3. And uh, we, we sort of gave up a bit by then. I mean, Fox Street means they, they have fired off their, their Phoenix missiles against our uh, fighters, which were by then about 60 miles, 60 miles away. And, and that was a fun time. You were, you were both in the Army and the Air Force kind of working at the pointy end of the stick here. And this was a time before there was a lot of automation. So, so, so a lot less technological support than, than the kinds of um, uh, uh, environment military folk are working in today. Yeah. Um, and so just for our folks who don't know what a China pencil is, those were these, uh, we call them grease pencils too, I think, but it was almost like a crayon that you could write on a, um, acetate overlay. That's right. That's it. Yeah. 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 And then erase it with a, a cloth. With a piece of cloth. Yeah. yeah mutton, mutton cloth. That's right. <laughs> I think we just lost all of our younger listeners, by the way. Uh, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so you were doing the kinds of jobs that NDM researchers study at that time in your life. And so I'm wondering, how did you uh, kind of find your way from there to, to um, academia and naturalistic decision-making and studying the people that do those jobs? That was a, yeah, it was a bit of a convoluted path. Um, shortly after those, that, that time, I was uh, posted to the headquarters of the Republic of Singapore Air Force as a staff officer for command and control. 
Um, my job was to devise methods to, to support the Chief of Air Force's um, information needs during wartime. Um, I became fascinated by how much and how fast our commander was able to assimilate huge amounts of logistics, operations, intel, enemy information in very short amount of time and come up with a decision that would set off a string of entire operations. So that got me thinking about research. I mean, uh, for me, the questions uh, at that time, were, were, I, I suspect, was were things like, uh, how do we learn about how people make decisions in such settings? How do we describe them in tangible ways that will enable um, you know, uh, system designers to create the right kinds of designs? Um, designs in particular, I thought that was important for them to be compatible with the way that these people thought about the problems that they deal with and how do you, so that they can assimilate information as quickly as possible. So, so that sort of got me um, trying to figure out how and where I could go and study this, uh, this, 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 this thing. And that sort of got me started uh, at, at, at um, choosing between university or furthering my career in the Air Force. I chose the university. <laughs> and so what did you study initially? Well, my, my undergraduate training was in something called marketing management, uh, strangely enough. Um, but I thought at that point, uh, it was also useful for me to combine it with something called uh, information systems. Um, uh, and and back, in the, back in the days, uh, most people never thought of such a combination being useful or possible. Actually, I was discouraged uh, from, from doing such a combination because uh, you probably won't find jobs. Um, but as it turns out, um, I eventually uh, got into um, work that, uh, uh, well, marketing gave me a concept of how operations, or how organizations operated. Uh, and given my, my military background as well, that gave me some clear insights about uh, strategy um, and, and, and how uh, things moved within organizations. Uh, technology side, the information system side, gave me a lot of insight about how um, technology uh, could uh, effectively um, support um, strategies and how we could um, use those technologies to give us competitive um, uh, uh, advantage over uh, our competitors. And we're taking it in terms of the military that's our enemies. So that's a bit of my uh, undergraduate history. I guess uh, when I started my PhD work, I was I was introduced to um, uh, my, my my first supervisor then, uh, a chap by the name of um, David O'Hare, um, and and he sort of introduced me to um, uh, the field of uh, NDM. Um, he he when I told him about the kinds of domains that I was uh, interested in working with, uh, he told me, "Oh, you should read Gary Klein." Uh, funny enough, uh, <laughs> so he he gave me a number of materials to read um, uh, about the NDM, uh, the the RPD model, um, and quite critical at that point in time, uh, the critical decision method, and how it could be used as a basis for qualitative research um, to 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 
to discover uh, some of the soft things like decision strategies and how I could then use that to, 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 to design interfaces for controlling complex uh, dynamic processes. Uh, yeah, and, and, and David at that time as well, David O'Hare, um, introduced me to, to Jens Rasmussen's work. Ah. And at that point in time, I tell you, I just found it totally impenetrable. <laughs> uh, uh, however, I knew that somewhere in there, there was something that I needed uh, uh, to know. And I guess uh, eventually, as I got to know more about the field, um, I discovered another person's work, which was very, very helpful, uh, Chris Wickens. Um, his ideas, uh, particularly those that were embedded in the uh, proximity compatibility principle, uh, that made a lot of sense to me when we were trying to design systems uh, and interfaces. How do you how do you move? How do you uh, 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 design uh, representations? At that time, I also needed to figure out how to to find the information that I needed about the processes and the cognitive work that we were trying to create designs for. Um, I came across, again, one of Gary's older uh, pieces of work, the state-of-the-art report at the DTIC, uh, something called Naturalistic Decision-Making Implications for Design. And as I was interested in design, I began to see how Gary's work could help me uncover the information about the work. And Chris's work on the PCP could then guide how I could create those designs. And soon after that, um, I, I came across, stumbled across a book called The Psychology of Everyday Things. Mm. And at that time, I was teaching usability engineering at, um, uh, in, 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 at, at Otago. And I, I found that this, the, the standard usability uh, methods were, were, were just too prescriptive. Don Norman's principles, I found them very liberating. His work helped me understand uh, that uh, we rationally, we can rationally uh, create user interface designs, um, uh, and and that these designs were not just warm and fuzzy stuff, uh, but in theory they could be deconstructed to the first principles. And and as I was working in that kind of area, I I got to know a, a very um, uh, a bright um, uh, professor, uh, her name's Penny Sanderson. Mm, yeah. yeah. Yes, she was amazing. Uh, she influenced my career in a really big way. Um, when I graduated from, from uh, my PhD program shortly after that, uh, she took me along on one of her um, uh, field uh, research trips. Uh, uh, we, were, we were on a project to uh, design a cognitive systems engineering-based UI for hydroelectricity generation company um, in, in Australia. This uh, was when uh, Australia deregulated its electricity market. So hydroelectricity companies um, now had to be profit-driven rather than just managing system safety and water levels. Um, Penny was, was really wonderful. She shared uh, a lot of her own experience and her expertise about what it means uh, uh, to be an academic and, uh, and to be a professor. Um, yeah, um, we, we, we had a lot of great times together. She also introduced me to um, a, a chap by the name of Kim Vicente. Oh, Kim. <laughs> it, was, it was a really strange kind of meeting. 
because this was shortly after I had written a paper that disagreed uh, that you could use CSE models to model intention, uh, intentional systems. Uh, he, he didn't agree with me on that one, which is fine. Um, I didn't think too much about it, but uh, through that incident, I got to know two of his uh, students, Kathy Burns and uh, Greg Jameson, who apparently shortly after that meeting were tasked were given the task to, to write a paper to rebut my paper. And during the whole process, we, we had a great time. We, we got to know people at the uh, DSTO in, 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 in Australia, Neelam Nika and, and, and people like Kevin Linton, uh, both of whom uh, were also very helpful in helping me understand this process of cognitive work analysis. So that's a bit about the education side of things, sorry took such a long time. No, that was great. That was great. I'm just uh, fascinated that you started with marketing uh, that helped you understand organizations and information systems that have, you had this interest in technology. And then you had lived these really challenging, high stakes um, uh, jobs. Um, I don't think I've spoken to anyone who had quite that combination at the very beginning to kind of set the stage for their career. That's fascinating. I guess I was lucky and in the right place at the right time. <laughs> huh, yeah. Even though at that point in time, I probably was thinking, should I have just stayed on and made my career in the military? Sure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, when you're young, those choices are, well, at any age, those choices are so hard. When you have two good opportunities, which one to take? Yeah. 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 So, William, you, your expanding NDM network uh, eventually brought you to a place where you hosted the ninth NDM meeting. Uh, so I'm wondering in what ways did that particular event shape your work and kind of your engagement with the community? Right. Well, we're going back in history now, <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, we, we had a, a NDN 9 was um, in 2009. Uh, we, we ran it back in, 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 uh, in London in 2009. We had a wonderful team. Um, Neville Stanton, Mike Strupp, uh, Julie Gore, Nick Sivaldis, and a couple of my, uh, my students, Gabby Manchero and Misha Kodagoda. Uh, we, uh, I think we had a fabulous time for you, those of you who were there. Uh, the, the conference team was NDM and computers. Uh, from, from models like the uh, task artifact cycle, we, we know that uh, technology affects how a task is performed, which in turn affects the demands it places on the technology and thereby changing the technology in the future. With that in mind, we wanted the NDM conference to consider if and how technology might be changing how we thought about NDM and what that might mean for the design of technology. Um, and as a result of uh, that kind of um, uh, background thinking, uh, we brought in a number of people from outside the NDM community um, in, from people from the visualization and the machine learning uh, communities. So people like Richard May, uh, who was the deputy director at the, the NVAC, the National Visual Analytics um, uh, Center uh, at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Um, uh, Jan Kohlhammer, who headed up the, um, uh, the visualization and, and, and graphics and decision-making group at the at, at Fraunhofer and David Ebert, a professor at Purdue University who was responsible for leading much of the 
visual analytics uh, science um, uh, area um, that was funded by the uh, Department of Homeland Security. They presented a panel at a conference um, on this emerging area called visual analytics, and they were looking at examining how visual analytics could support analytical thinking. Uh, and this was a fascinating topic for me. I mean, it was the idea of what, what they talked about was um, uh, having an analytic discourse with data. Uh, initially, it sounded to me like it was just a fancier way of saying uh, better interactivity. But after a few years, I think the, the, pen, the penny finally uh, dropped. Sure, interactivity was uh, a part of it. But visual analytics is intended to support, it, it dawned on me later, the, the externalization of thinking and reasoning by enabling the manipulation of problem elements and information to discover a solution. And this, this whole notion of being able to manipulate and construct meaning uh, became the core message of a keynote I gave at uh, EuroVA or EuroVisual Analytics in 2014. Um, based on the, the, the science of um, analytic reasoning, uh, designing for thinking. So within the um, sort of the NDM9, there was another uh, important paper that, that, that sort of um, uh, affected my influence, my thinking. Um, it's, it's a paper by uh, Gary and Robert Hoffman, Gary Klein and Robert Hoffman. Causal reasoning, uh, an initial report of a naturalistic study of causal influences. Um, and, and this got me, um, uh, I mean, it stumped me then, but uh, later on when we were in the Valkyrie project, it, it, it started to make sense. Uh, cognitive work analysis generally suggests that we, we identify functional relationships in causal systems. Uh, these, these are systems that abide by laws of nature and then map them in some meaningful way to the interface. In Valkyrie, the work domain of intelligence analysis and investigative analysis is not governed by the laws of nature, but is instead governed by laws of logic and argumentation. So Gary's and, 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 and Robert's paper on causal reasoning led me to conclude that perhaps we should not be seeking to represent a visualization of the intelligence and investigative analysis work, but instead, to create a workspace that uh, for constructing meaning around uniquely sequenced pieces of information and evidence based on the laws of logic and, and thereby, according to visual analytics uh, uh, thinking, externalizing the reasoning and inference making processes uh, supported by machine learning and interactive visualizations. So, so here is um, a, a bit of um, how uh, NDM we tried to, to expand it so that we could bring others into, in, into the field, but at the same time helped me to, to, to thinking about some of the work that we were doing later on in, in, in Valkyrie. Wow, this is so interesting. So one of the things I remember from that meeting is um, just really crystallizing this idea that doing a careful cognitive task analysis or cognitive work analysis um, is not the same as having a good design, right? And that might even be a different skill set, or you might have to um, develop, yeah, other other types of skills. Um, I think, I think earlier in my career, 
Um, I was so focused on methods, interview methods, and analyzing qualitative data and the insights that come from that. And I just assumed the the designs, the visualizations would, you know, fall out of that. Um, but they don't. Um, mm-hmm. And and so to hear you kind of reflect on that in in a similar way. I mean, not that you were reflecting on that distinction, but this idea that um, that you'd read about cognitive work analysis and and you heard this this talk that Gary and Robert gave, and that that all kind of clicked for you a little bit later as you were developing these these visualizations. Hmm. Um, it is interesting how how these ideas that have been floating around just click when 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 the right problem presents itself. They come together in new ways. Yeah, during the conference, it was yeah okay. It was very interesting. Thank you. But um, or you think back after, like in this case, some some years. Um, it started to make sense that um, you know if we're trying to to design and we're not just doing a CTA for the sake of it, um, you know, then then the CTA must feed in to, to to inform the way we design. But the question is, how do we design? Um, and and very often I found uh, uh, that uh, we have a lot of uh, people who are very good designers. Um, they, they they focus on the, the the how bit of design. They're very good at doing the how bit, uh, but they're, they're not very informed about the what is it that we design, uh, which was the the work that uh, you and, and Emily and others uh, were, were looking at in terms of helping it make it clear what is it that we can bring out. How do you make uh, um, expertise tangible, and if you can sort of uh, articulate expertise in a tangible way enough for designers to get a finger on it, then we can specify use cases and um, you know design strategies and, and, and so forth. So 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 thanks for for your, some of the insights that you you guys gave us through the uh, the, the CTA work. Well, that, that's that that's kind of you to to say that. I was um, I I so I, I still think there's some magic that happens if you've done really good CTA and you've articulated these cognitive requirements and the aspects of expertise, and then you have good designers. Um, it's still it's still a creative process. It's not as if um, uh, having just the right set of, of requirements is going to get you there, or having the right designers. You kind of need both, and you, and you need this creative space. You are right. Yeah. And, and that comes a bit from, uh, some people call it expertise and other people call it biases. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think if you are somebody trained uh, in, in, in design um, and, and you're open to, to seeing how uh, you can represent uh, particular problems rather than just presenting uh, on, on a particular problem, you know, uh, differentiating between the, those two, uh, you will find that magic moment. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the other thing that the early CTA and CWA work helps to do is to inform what not to do later. Yeah. Right. So, so, it can, so it can provide the opportunity because there's lots of different ways to design and lots of different designs are typically offered, but those initial requirements will help us to take things off the table that we know aren't going to work uh, or may um, even disable expertise. That's right. And at the same time, it also identifies things that you can't change in the, uh, the, the work domain and you've got to figure out how to work around them. 
um, or, or worse still, to figure out that, that some things uh, are important constraints. Um, like, for example, when we were working with, um, uh, with the hydroelectric uh, electricity people, um, one of the things that we, we had to incorporate was uh, profit making. Um, but at the same time, we got to make sure that the machines uh, don't um, exert themselves to such an extent that they become dangerous. So we put in constraint lines uh, as well as target lines uh, so that the, um, in, in, in this ecological interface design, uh, that made it possible for the controllers to visualize how far away their systems were um, from the, the margins of safety, um, but at the same time making a profit and understanding what a profit might be. Um, and, and to be able to, to do that, you, if, you, if you were not able to see your, your lines of safety performance, then you would put in an extra margin uh, on, on safety. But if you knew where you were and you could move your system up, say, from uh, 20% safety buffer to, let's say, 5% safety buffer, then you could make potentially 15% more profit. So for us, that was, that, that was very handy to be able to know that these were the kinds of uh, uh, interdependent kind of uh, constraints that needed to be somehow or other represented in the system. Yeah. So, so William, I wanted to ask if you would tell us more about the Valkyrie project. I, every time I heard a talk about this, I was just fascinated. Um, so, yeah, and I know it was a giant project, but I wonder if you could just yeah, yeah, tell our listeners a little bit about, about that project. Uh, the Valkyrie project. Uh, yes, I will. Uh, Valkyrie. Valkyrie stands for Visual Analytics for Sensemaking in Criminal Intelligence Analysis. And its name was partly inspired by Nordic mythology, Valkyries, the goddesses of the battlefield who decides who lives and who dies. And and in a sense, it gave us a a, a sort of motivation as well. Uh, We wanted to build a system that could, through superior information, empower police to, to fight crime and protect the liberty and security of our fellow citizens. So, So for us, that was... A kind of, um, you know, no, noble uh, a reason for wanting to get into it. Of course, there was the money bit and so on, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Valkyrie was a um, uh, 17 organization, uh, partner organization, EU funded project. And we were tasked to research and develop a next generation uh, criminal intelligence analysis system that would do four major things that we that we envision okay encourage imagination enable insight to engage with fluidity and rigor and while ensuring transparency um, that, that's something where we hope that the um, um, the system will do and the system would differentiate itself from other kinds of um, um, intelligence analysis systems at its peak, we had about 135 scientists, engineers, and police officers from across eight European countries. It was multidisciplinary. We had experts in the ethics, privacy, law, cognitive bias, sense making, uh, logic and argumentation, uh, designers, HCI people, trainers in intelligence analysis. 
uh, and, and working with a team of um, uh, research and industrial software engineers uh, in machine learning, uh, ontologies, databases, system architecture, security and uh, data access control people. Um, we, we, we spent a lot of time studying our police colleagues at work uh, in order to understand the phenomena of uh, investigative analysis. It, it, the focus wasn't so much on what requirements do you have, but what is it that you do and, and why, do you, why do you think in that particular way in order to do that? So that was the kind of focus of our uh, uh, field work uh, with, with, the, with the analysts. We apply a lot of cognitive task analysis uh, to that, but uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in a short while. Um, back to Valkyrie system that we, we, we wanted to build. It, was, it comprises two broad sets of functions. One, crime analysis, and two, uh, investigative uh, analysis. In the crime analysis area, um, you would do things like uh, trend analysis, um, crime hotspot analysis, performance analysis, um, primarily to support uh, strategic and tactical intelligence. Uh, and in the investigation area, um, <clears throat> the, the issue here was to, 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 to get the, your facts, the data, the evidence that you have, the analysis that you have made, uh, and, and have them presented on electronic cards that you can quickly shuffle around like the tiles in a game of Scrabble. And I think Laura, you had seen this when, at the demo when when you visited us um, yes. uh, years back. Um, and then this this interface is is combined through a machine learning engine um, that is intended to carry out some of the repetitive tasks requiring human intellectual judgment. Um, such tasks, for example, um, find similar or associated cases in the police databases. To, to automatically populate structured analytic tools such as a comparative case analysis tables. The machine learning engine is also designed to support queries um, like, um, find me more like this. Here's a crime. Here is the, uh, the report. Uh, here are the characteristics within this report. Find me more reports that appear to be like this so that I don't have to sift through half a million uh, uh, reports to find the 50 if the system can sift through that and, and bring bring to me a hundred from which I find the, the 50, which I to find the, the three that I need, that is still, a, that is an incredible amount of time savings uh, already. So, so that's what we were trying to do rather than trying to say, so find me the actual answers. So I'm just going to interrupt for a sec because yeah. what I loved about this is it's a, it's a way to help people find patterns. So we're not having the machine learning find the pattern, right? The human is still thinking about what are the interesting characteristics of this case, and I want to find others with those characteristics, and then they might explore a different set of characteristics. Um, so in, instead of pretending like this machine can somehow do the creative problem solving, you, you use machine learning uh, just to support the human in finding cases so they can start to see the pattern. So I... I, I just thought that um, that was a beautiful design. Well, thank you. Yes, that is that is it. That that's the uh, the thing. Yes. So so we we sort of um, uh, focus on the idea of um, um, humans deciding, humans decide, and and machines doing the heavy lifting. Uh, so the heavy lifting in this case was really uh, sorting through the mundane uh, millions in order to find those 
possibly related material from which I can then creatively decide which one makes a bit more sense in the context of what I'm, I'm investigating. So find me more like this. And the other one was that we were uh, focusing on were about associations. Show me what other data might be related or potentially be, be related. Uh, and, and that was quite important in trying to create um, uh, um, awareness of what the situation is and what the situation could potentially be as well. Because you're no longer looking at what are the known relations in the crime, but you're also looking at what other possible events that could have happened, that not could have, what other events that happened in that time uh, slot, in that location, um, and who else have been involved in these kinds of things. So if you create a thematic uh, arrangement of, of some of the, uh, the crimes, you want to know as well, in that particular type of crime, what were the other um, uh, participants, what were other activities that were occurring uh, at, at the same time? Now, those things are not directly related to the crime incident itself, but they may prompt you to think about, ooh, there have been some involvement of a particular gang in this area for some time now. Maybe we should start investigating uh, another link uh, there. So, so that is the notion of this, this associations that we were trying to create within the system. So that's, that's one part of it. Um, the, other, the other parts of it is, well, I, when, when we started the, uh, the work, I was really intent about designing a system that would focus on actually creating an environment that would enable insight particularly through the kind of sense-making uh, described by Gary Klein's um, uh, data frame model, and in particular, his uh, triple path model of insight. Uh, I wanted the consortium to, to share my ideas. So being the project coordinator, um, I had the liberty of buying 120 copies of Gary's then recently published book, Seeing What Others Don't. And I got Gary to inscribe uh, them and, and I gave it to each member of our consortium. Uh, and, and he wrote, my best wishes for the Valkyrie community to gain its own insights and to design ways that promote insights in others in order to make the world a safer place. Gary Klein. He made my day. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, I didn't know that. Um, that's, that's really cool. So you, you bought a copy of this book for everyone in the consortium. Yep. And uh, well... I wanted them to think about this idea of sense-making and insight because if you don't have that, all you're going to build is really a um, search and retrieval system, which is what every other intelligence analysis system is about. So we wanted things that enabled insight. So, so Gary, he, he, put the, uh, you know, he, he put his finger on it directly when he wrote in an inscription um, and to design ways that promote insight in others. And that's what we're trying to do. So, 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 yeah. So, 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 so he really made my day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, through his work, I, I sort of started to make the connections um, uh, uh, between what he talked about then as this playful reasoning uh, stances style and, and concrete re reasoning style. Um, initially, I found it quite hard to uh, understand what that meant until I started working into um, the, the analysis with our um, uh, police um, analysts. 
I realized that what this thing, what he meant was that it wasn't two different things, two different styles, but it was a continuum of styles, a continuum of what I, I called the analytic rigor. And along this continuum, uh, we, we needed to understand what happens in between. So as we did some of these cognitive task analysis, uh, we use, uh, of course, we use critical decision method because that's what I'm, I'm most familiar with uh, to learn about uh, how analysts think and um, um, <clears throat> how they dealt with problems during the analytic and investigative problems. We, we then, uh, in order to make sure that we focused on, on this analysis thinking process, we, we, we trialed a number of uh, tools. One of them was called the SMART probes. SMART for sense-making and reasoning tool uh, to help us focus on reporting on the uh, inference-making and, and, and sense-making activities. Um, what we found from this process uh, was um, a, a sort of a, a, a three-layered uh, triangle, uh, if you want to think about it that way. The, the innermost layer uh, is, is what we call the uh, the inference cycle, uh, where you see, where you see the, uh, the things like uh, induction, inductive reasoning, uh, deductive inference making, but more importantly, we saw most frequently was abductive reasoning, um, that led to to, to su suppositions uh, for which they could then create possible conclusions, and once they and, and where they start, whether it's abductive, inductive, or deductive, uh, what we also discovered was it depended very heavily upon uh, the kinds of goals that the, the investigator has, the facts that are available, lots of facts, very small amount of facts, uh, and the experience and the expertise. Uh, and that would determine how you, you would start with a, an induction, the abduction, or deduction. Uh, and it wasn't an either-or thing, but a, a matter of combinations until uh, you, you're able to, to uh, create what we talk about as uh, the three A's, uh, anchoring, lettering, and associations. Yeah, don't ask me why the middle one is an A. Uh, it's, it's lettering for A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so you, you, would, you would create an anchor um, uh, as in uh, a starting point. It gives you, you've got to make an assumption about something where you don't know and you're not familiar with or you don't have enough information about. So you, you create an anchor. Um, and then you, you sort of build on it uh, uh, as, in, as in lettering, as in the elaborate process in, in the data frame model. And then you, may, you, you might want to understand what are the other associative links that may be possible um, uh, within the information. So... What you start to hear do is is to understand the situation and to create the claims that are based on actual observations. So once we do that, um, and we, we started to observe something else, the the analysts make use of the um, intuition to take leaps of faith to new insights. Okay, and what we started to see was this process occurs very frequently, uh, although with varying degree of, uh, of certainty uh, across, uh, across their investigations. Now, if we were to stop there and, and, and rely on intuition alone, that would be very bad. 
uh, I, I think that would be uh, fraught with a lot of errors and, and stuff like that. But what that process did for them is that it allowed them to formulate their thinking into hypotheses that could then be tested. Uh, tested by, for example, using structured analytic techniques. And this is essential. Without any of these things, it's just, it's just plain guessing. Mm. So what, what we understood from this, this, this thing uh, in, in Valkyrie was that we, we needed to, to enable them to, to, to do the very quick, generative, creative uh, thinking that allowed them to speculate, make tentative hypotheses. Is it possible? Maybe drawing their intuition, but at the same time transition once they have some kind of hypothesis to test them and to test them quickly enough. And very often that kind of test could be as simple as drawing up all of the information that they need about the case to be able to determine if actually he was imprisoned at that period. Don't try that particular uh, pathway. Let, let's go back. Discard that hypothesis, start on something new. And to be able to do that in, you know, in minutes rather than in five days. So for us, that was the, uh, the, oh, that's what we need to do. And which is why we talked about engaging with fluidity and rigor to be able to very fluidly and transition this, uh, you know, uh, highly creative to highly critical and highly formal processes and to do that back and forth. So, so that's, that, that became part of our um, the, the basic idea behind uh, uh, Valkyrie. And that's, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, four years after that, well, uh, project ended 2018. Really sad day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Valkyrie owned by Middlesex University was acquired by Genetech um, Incorporated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I wanted to ask about that. So you had a chance to really move out of the lab. And I mean, I know you'd been studying the real world to start with, but then to get into industry and, and think about how to um, commercialize this, make put this into use uh, across the EU. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about that experience? The commercialization experience? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think commercializing one's IP is it, it sounds really glamorous, but it is also, uh, in my view, okay, my, my, my personal view, is also horribly painful. Um, it's like giving up your eight-year-old child for adoption. Mm. Imagine you, you, you lived and, and breathed the air with this child for eight years, going through numerous ups and downs, uh, stuck on band-aids numerous amount of times on her knee, uh, help her back up on her, her bike after she falls. And now you will have to give her up and have nothing more to do with her. You can see her, uh, but you can no longer influence her in her new family. To me, it was a little bit like that. Uh, it took me a, a while to let it go, uh, to learn to let go. So if you are thinking of selling your IP, uh, you must be prepared to let the buyer decide how best it will fit in with the strategy of the other products. Because at the end of the day, the companies paid a decent sum of money for it. Uh, they must be able to modify and adapt the, the, the product to make it work for their customers and therefore make a good return. Um, I think there are many positives as well. Um, trying to make it on one's own as a startup, I think it's really, really challenging. And some of you have done that. Um, I, I, I'm not the kind of person. Um, it, uh, uh, 
while these startups have got a lot of appeal, uh, I think um, as, as you own the business, you have the, the, the potential of uh, reaping a lot of uh, returns. The harsh reality is that there are bills to pay, and whilst they are trying to develop your software into a commercial product, you still need to do many things. Business development, finding markets, creating need for your product, and then there's marketing, advertising, support, training, maintenance. Uh, and worse, worse still, which is what I, I discovered, um, uh, if you're trying to sell into organizations, you have to dislodge existing customers or suppliers uh, or cut deals with them before they even begin to talk to you about uh, bringing your business into the organization. Universities and small businesses, uh, it's, we're, not, we're not cut out for that kind of, 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 that kind of uh, arrangements. It's really, really hard. And other thoughts that cross my mind is, is like IP issues. Um, I think it's good if you are first uh, that you should be aware of the language of of, of IP uh, intellectual property and how it is protected and managed. Um, you should find an experienced person to talk through with you whether you want to sell it outright with no recourse to influence later, or own and control uh, so that you so that you have a, a range of um, ownership options. Um, that will help you to be a bit more mentally prepared and, and, and fully aware of what you're actually giving up and what you will get in return. For, for me as an academic, those were heady times. Uh, but I think, yeah, and, 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 and lawyers, they're very important, uh, but they're not the persons for brokering the best deal for you. What you really want is the shrewdest business person who has your interest at heart. Once the terms are agreed, a lawyer is a really good lawyer is indispensable for ensuring that you are adequately protected. Um, I, I guess one last thought about commercialization is that um, um, you and I, are, as, as scientists, are probably fascinated by the science um, that was the basis of your, our designs that we painstakingly crafted to work so simply. The, the sales staff and the marketing staff and the advertising folk, um, well, they are the least interested in the scientific principles that you took years to understand, to, to apply them in a practical setting. Uh, don't be offended. That's just business. These, these customers won't, won't be, the customers won't be interested either. They just want to buy your product because it works better. And, and yeah, so it took me a while to, to, to sort of come to terms with some of these things. <laughs> William, I'm actually curious about those customers you're talking about. So um, as, as this was commercialized, is this going to law enforcement agencies, essentially? And then a second part of the question is, what kind of pushback did you get, um, if any, uh, either during the commercialization stage or perhaps even earlier in the research stage uh, from the community? So the the law enforcement community, those folks who might, for instance, not really be all too keen to work with new tools and might be uh, quite pleased to just rely on their intuition moving forward. Did you see that kind of pushback? Um, actually, whenever we showed Valkyrie to uh, the police, um, the, the analyst and the investigator says, we want it now. Hmm. Um, uh, and and it, because it gave them a capability which uh, none of their other systems um, 
uh, do. They, they, they often have to work between many different systems, cut and pasting or, or doing other kinds of uh, ridiculous things in order to transfer data across and, and so forth. Uh, and then um, at the same time, uh, Valkyrie provides a way of assembling the, um, their facts and their evidence to construct uh, uh, the cases, uh, something which they don't really have uh, support for other than manually doing it uh, in, in the other system. So functionally, as well as the, the appeal of the, the interface was something that they, they, they really wanted. The difficult part um, was really the commercial uh, work. So uh, in, in this respect, I mean, I really take my hat off to the marketing guys and the commercial guys at, at, at Genetech. These, these people, um, you know, they, they know how to, um, uh, how do you call it, um, deal with organizational procurement, um, how to, to be able to gain access to it, how to meet the functionality specifications that uh, are put up by the RFPs, by, by, the, by the organizations. Um, and then we've got to bear in mind that the, um, that the analysts and users that we are, uh, that who actually end, who end up using the systems are the people who are not the people who make the, the decisions. Uh, often this is done by the procurement officers and so forth. So you know understanding the, um, uh, that there are two different groups that you need to talk to. And, and, and the hardest thing I, I found was that uh, with police forces, especially the bigger ones, um, the big players, the big technology players are already in there. And, and for, for, for us to, to get into it or for any other else, any other parties to get into it, you have to, you have to get into them um, by partnering with them. So you have to cut a deal with them. You've got to make some arrangements with them so that, um, for example, if they, if they own the infrastructure, uh, you have to cut a deal with them so that you can plug in your, your, your system to their infrastructure. And of course, nothing's for free. Uh, and, and how you make that work for the company uh, as well as for the competitor. It's, it's a strange business. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing those insights. I, uh, I think you started out saying it seems glamorous and it does. I mean, I think we all, all, many of us, you know, as scientists, we would love to see our ideas commercialized and in use every day. Um, so it's, it's interesting to kind of hear the voice of experience about some of the, 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 the challenges associated with that. Mm. Um, so I wanted to lighten things up and ask, um, tell us one thing about yourself that the audience probably doesn't know. This is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> In 1976, thereabouts, uh, I was in a school play that uh, made it to the finals of the uh, Singapore's uh, National Drama Festival. Uh, the, the, these were um, uh, drama festivals for, for high schools. Uh, the play was called Paper Phoenix and was presented in the style of a traditional Chinese opera, but in English. I played the role of a Chinese scholar uh, in, in, in the traditional dress, okay, uh, who had the love of his life stolen by an evil overlord. Sounds very operatic. <laughs> uh, there's lots of crying, lots of people dying and, and so forth uh, because the evil overlord was really evil. And as a scholar, I, I sort of uh, reflected back and he sort of um, tried to 
uh, console your, your 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 friends and family with uh, this particular phrase that, that comes to mind: um, "When the evil are mighty and strong, be like the bamboo that bends but does not break in the blowing winds." So, so that's a little bit about me. Uh, I don't think anybody else would know about. Very nice. So, did you sing in in, in this production? Uh, no, we didn't sing because. Um, you know, it, it was the opera setting, uh, but we had a, a lot of um, uh, spoken um, um, words and we had the gestures, the movements. Um, we, so we copied a lot of the movements that you see in, uh, in Chinese opera, the, the walking, uh, the style of walking, the way of holding your, your, your arms and how you flick your sleeves in order to, to make a point and how you... Um, brush your beards. Uh, so, so we learned all of the movements uh, from actual uh, Chinese opera uh, artists in, in, in Singapore. But we spoke the entire play in English. Wow, what an experience. And so have you, since then, have you ever um, done any more uh, acting? Is that, has that been an interest to you? No, 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 no more after that. It was fun when we, when we were doing it uh, in, in high school. Uh, but that, that was it. Yep. Cool. Very cool. All right. So I have just one last kind of fun question here for you today. If you could instantly become an expert in something, what would you choose? Wow. Um, nouveau flamenco guitarist. Wow. Uh, I wish I could. Uh, I, I, I watch and I listen to, to, uh, to guitarists like Otmar Liebert, uh, Rodrigo uh, Gabriela, uh, and, and, and um, groups like this new group called 40 Fingers. you got to listen to them, uh, Laura uh, and Brian. If you get a chance, uh, you watch them play the guitar. And, and if you ever get them to play, uh, you watch them play uh, uh, Toto Africa, uh, it's just amazing. Uh, the, the finger movements, the, uh, the, the rhythms, uh, the way they synchronize it. It's all pure guitar, but yet it sounds like an orchestra. Wow, I will check that out. Yep. So I just want to share that I was lucky enough to come to a picnic at your house once where you and colleagues and friends uh, performed music and uh, we all sang along and that was really fun. That was a wonderful time, wasn't it? It was. That was a great day. Yeah, so well, thank you, William, for speaking with us today. It has really been a pleasure. And so on that note, thank you for joining us for the NDM Podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.